Hey, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, welcome to this Garden Film. This is something that we've done, I've done for like 20 years. Uh, and I started, I started doing it uh, all the way back. We, used, we were in this little warehouse in Hackensack. And um, uh, it, was, it was a much smaller room than this. I don't know if there's... Is there anyone here who remembers the little building in Hackensack that we... Anybody? Who, wait, who said that? Diego. Diego remembers. Um, yeah, so, so uh, it was, I, would put, I would put tube TVs. Remember tube TVs? Yeah, on, on each like side of the stage. And then I would connect them with this incredible piece of technology called a dual deck VCR. It was, it was really state of the art. And everybody would have to lean in and kind of watch the clips. And you know, it worked. But this actually, this is the first time that we're doing this in this new setup. So it's kind of fun to have, to have all the screens and, and you know, the, the audio system and all that that we have. Now, the reason that we do God and Film uh, it's not to be trendy, it's not to be clever, it's, it's because we live in a storytelling culture. We live in a culture that loves to tell stories. We love movies, we love TV shows, we love to talk about it, we love novels, and... <laughs> Alright guys, I think we should just call it quits right now. I think we should just go home. I don't think this is going to work. Um, but, uh, so, so, uh, so, sorry. All right. Um, so, so we live in this culture that, and human beings have always, have always loved telling stories. And, and Jesus, his primary way of telling, of communicating truths was through parables. And what parables were was just, it was stories. It was, you know, you look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that has a, a beginning and a middle and an end. It's a really, really good story. You look at the parable of the prodigal son, and that's, that's a really compelling story. And, uh, and so what we're going to do over the next month is we're going to be looking at some different movies. You can see the ones that we're, we're gonna, where we're going to be going. So next week, we're going to be doing Soul. That's a, a Disney Pixar movie. If you saw that movie, uh, you probably, you know, have a good idea of the, all the different themes and ways that we can go. The week after that, I'm going to be away. I'm going to be away for a week down in Phoenix uh, for some vineyard leadership stuff. So, so on the 25th, just to let you know, we're going to be taking a break from God and Phil. Marianne's going to be preaching kind of a we interrupt this God and Phil message. Uh, and, then, and then on uh, May 2nd, I'm, I'll be back and, uh, and I'm going to do The Invisible Man. Now, now all all of these movies, uh, recommend you kind of go watch. You know, they're they're good, they're good, good movies. Uh, Invisible Man is a little intense. I wouldn't say it's a horror movie, but it is like an intense movie. You don't need to watch it to kind of track with the sermon. Uh, and some people have said, "What are you going to do with that?" Uh, I'm going to talk about spiritual warfare, about this unseen battle that we have that affects us. I'm actually looking forward to that. And then I'm going to finish it up with The Farewell, which is a beautiful movie about family. Uh, it's going to be on Mother's Day. Actually, it's about family and it's about loss, and it's just it's just a, a wonderful movie. Uh, I'm starting off the series with Hamilton. Uh, so Hamilton was a, a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it appeared on Broadway in 2015, and, uh, and, and it really, I mean, it literally was the hottest ticket in town. Um, people, people would have to get like a second mortgage on their house in order to buy the tickets, you know, to go see this show, or they'd have to like wait outside all night in the hopes of kind of getting the lottery. Uh, it had a really big impact. Um, I made a whole lot of teenagers interested in American history, right? You had, you know, because it, it was just so cleverly done. And, and uh, uh, actually, the 
the U.S. Department of Treasury was going to replace Alexander Hamilton on the $10 bill. It was going to take him off of the $10 bill. Because of the popularity of this musical, he's still on the $10 bill. And uh, it's just, it was an incredibly creative production. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote it, who directed it, who stars in it, he just did an incredible job. What he did is he told the story of Alexander Hamilton and the Founding Fathers uh, through hip-hop. And, uh, and he had all of the Founding Fathers and the Founding Mothers played by people of color, uh, which was kind of a, a subversive, kind of revolutionary thing to do. Uh, this is based on Ron Chernow's 2004 biography on Alexander Hamilton. I love historical biographies. They are probably my favorite genre of literature. I read every, like as, you know, any good one I can get my hands on. And I would say Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton is one of the best. It's absolutely one of the best historical biographies that you could come across. And, uh, and, and so there's a lot of different directions I could go in with this because Hamilton's life was pretty multi-layered and there's all sorts of themes. But if you were with us on Good Friday... I was talking about um, shame and how Jesus came to set us free from sin and death and shame. And we don't really think enough about shame. And we don't think about the effect that shame has in our life. We don't think about the pain that shame causes us. And I think that God has more for us to explore because he, he wants to bring us to freedom. He wants to set us free from shame. And I thought Alexander Hamilton's life was an opportunity for us to explore this a little bit more because I just, I see with him that, uh, you know, incredibly gifted guy, accomplished so much, but, but he was hounded by shame his whole life. And he never really got over the shame because he had such a difficult early life and he never really got over that. There was like a cloud that was hanging over him for his whole life. And, and it's an example, I think, of how shame can cause us pain. Shame can cause pain in the, the lives of those around us. And shame can ultimately derail our life because I would say it's his shame that, that caused him to die early. I think he was 47 or 48 when he died. So Alexander Hamilton... A little, little, little background sketch. He was born in either 1755 or 1757. We don't know for sure. There's conflicting reports. In the Caribbean, uh, he was a bastard. He was definitely born out of wedlock. His mother may or may not have been a prostitute. We're not sure about that. We're not really sure who his father was this guy named James Hamilton, especially once Alexander Hamilton became famous. James Hamilton's like, that's my boy. But there were questions uh, about who really was the father, and Hamilton wasn't involved in, in Alexander's life growing up. Uh, so Alexander Hamilton was raised by a single mom. They were penniless. Uh, when he was about 12 years old, he, he and his mother both got yellow fever. She died. And so he was a penniless orphan. Uh, he ended up being shipped off to a cousin. His cousin committed suicide. Now I'm just kind of wrapping the opening number, if you know the show. Um, but uh, but his, his life, his early life was really, really difficult. Now, one of the things that you don't get in the musical that you get in the biography uh, is is how Christianity played such an important role in Alexander Hamilton's life. When Alexander Hamilton was a teenager living in, I think it was St. Croix, the island that he spent most of his years on, he kind of bounced around different islands in the Caribbean, he was a devout Christian. 
like a real deal Christian. He was taken, uh, this Presbyterian minister named Hugh Knox took him under his wing, and, uh, and Hugh Knox was uh, someone who had experienced a full-scale revival in Scotland before he came to St. Croix, and, uh, and like, like power of the Holy Spirit and repentance and change, you know, transforming a community. And so it was like real deal Christianity. And so Alexander Hamilton was a strong Christian. And in 1772, there was a hurricane that hit the island that he was on and it devastated the island. And so he wrote Alexander Hamilton, who's this avid reader and really just gifted writer. He wrote this op-ed piece uh, about the hurricane, basically saying that the hurricane was kind of a wake-up call from God. And so he got all like Jonathan Edwards, you know, he said things in this, in this op-ed like, despise thyself and adore thy God. And, and there were many people who were um, devastated and, and, and uh, houses were destroyed by the, by the hurricane. Comfort the miserable and lay up treasures in heaven. And so this op-ed you know, and this is kind of setting up all the, the opening number, which is very expository. But, uh, it, it really, you know, people were like, who, who is this guy? And boy, we really, you know, we need to invest in this kid. And so they sent him to New York, and uh, he, he enrolled in King's College, which is the precursor to Columbia University. And so the opening number here is called Alexander Hamilton. But I want you to, I just want to show us this whole number just to kind of set the foundation and just so you can see and think about how how he never got past his humble beginnings. He never got over the shame of his upbringing, and he carried that with him in devastating ways throughout his whole life. So let's watch the first, uh, the first number here, Alexander Hamilton. How does a bastard... Orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The ten dollar, founded father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter by being a self-starter By fourteen, they placed him in charge of a trading charter and every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned on man Saw his future drip, dripping down the drain Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to was pain. Well, the word got around. They said this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you When he was ten, his father split Full of it, dead, ridden Two years later, see Alex and his mother bed Ridden, half dead Sitting in their room, sick, the scent thick And Alex got better, but his mother went quack Moved him with the cousin, the cousin committed suicide Left him with 
nothing but ruin pride Something new inside a voice saying Alex, you got a friend for yourself We started retreating and reading Every treatise on the shelf There would have been nothing left to do For someone less to suit He would have been dead and destitute Without a sense of restitution Started working Hucking for his late mother's landlord Reading sugar cane and rum And all the things he can't afford to scam it for Every book he can get his hands on Planning for the future See him now as he stands on the bow of a ship Headed for a new land In New York you can be a new man In New York you can be a new man In New York you can be a new man All right. So I just got to say, it's a nice, it's a good number to kind of kick off God and Film in this kind of new space with, uh, with that number. So very cool. Um, now, Alexander Hamilton, as I said, you know, he never got over the shame that he carried with him from his humble beginnings. But what he accomplished in life is amazing. I mean, the sheer accomplishments of Alexander Hamilton are stunning. He was a revolutionary war hero, right? He was a chief aide to General Washington. He was a delegate for the Constitutional Convention. He wrote the Federalist Papers, 51 out of the 85 essays of the Federalist Papers. First American Secretary of the Treasury, helped establish the U.S. Coast Guard, established the first U.S. National Bank, uh, founded the first the first political party in the United States, the Federalist Party. And of course, since we're in New Jersey, uh, which actually is kind of mocked all throughout this entire, New Jersey is made fun of throughout this entire production. Um, but he laid out the plan for Patterson as the first, uh, first industrial city of America. And if you go to the, uh, to the, to the Great Falls in Patterson, there's actually a statue of, of Alexander Hamilton. But, but he was constantly trying to prove his worth. I, you know, I think that he had, a, he had a purpose, that God called him, but he was so driven by shame. He was, he was hanging out with, like, wealthy landowners. He married into a very wealthy family, these aristocrats who were educated. And so he, he always felt like he wasn't enough. He always felt like he had, to, he had to do more. So he'd fight with everybody. He was a little bit paranoid. He was really, really, you know, driven. And, you know, a workaholic is, is just kind of, you know, putting it mildly. And so I would say being driven by shame cost him a lot, but it devastated his family. 
that his shame led to him having an affair, which I'll talk about in a few moments. I think, it, I think his shame led to the death of his son Philip in a duel, and it led ultimately to his early death as well in a duel. And so, uh, and so I want to talk about shame, and to do that, I want to kind of lay a little bit of a scriptural foundation, and then we'll get back into some more clips and kind of show how this, how this kind of uh, flows out. But I want to go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's kind of funny if, if you've been around, you know, I would say I've, I've preached more in the last six weeks from Genesis chapter 3 than I have in the last six years, but there's a lot of wisdom that's there. There's a lot that we can learn, and, and it, was where, it was where shame first showed up in the human experience. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the serpent, now actually I think it's interesting that the writer of the book of Genesis, I think was doing a little bit of a play on words, because serpent, it can mean snake, but as an adjective, the word, the Hebrew word that's used can also mean shiny one. And so I think this was Lucifer, this was one, a fallen archangel who was like described as one of the shiny ones, but he was like a snake, you know, he was being devious. And so the first thing that the serpent or Lucifer does is he goes after Eve's view of God. And he basically says, it all starts, you know, our shame starts with us not believing what God says and says he's a lying deity. God just wants to hold you down. And if you just kind of trust God and walk with him, you're going to be missing out on the good life. You're not going to be all that you can be. And underneath all of this is an accusation that Eve is not okay the way that she is, that Eve is deficient, that Eve, there's something more that you have to do. Now, prior to this, Adam and Eve, they were just being. They were human beings, right? They, they were, the Bible says they were naked and they were unashamed. And they would just enjoy each other, enjoy God while God enjoyed them. They were just being. But Satan put this lie in there. And he says, hey, listen, no, you need to be more. Don't be a human being, be a human doing. You need to do more in order to get your value, in order to get your worth. And so then verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so in a moment, Adam and Eve lost their innocence. And I, I think, as I've been thinking more about the tree of life and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I preached a sermon about that a couple of weeks ago. I think that it's like we can either just get our life from God, centered on Him, and, and be connected to Him, right? Enjoy God while He enjoys us. Or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is we step, we step away from God and we say, I'm going to figure stuff out on my own. I'm going to have my own knowledge. I'm going to have my own wisdom. I'm going to be a judge. I am going to be a discerner. I'm going to judge and figure out what is good and what is evil. And I'm going to figure this out. I'm not just going to let God tell me or get it, receive it from him. I'm going to be kind of a free agent. Now, the problem when we do that, if we're going to become a judge, 
The first thing we do is we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves as being less than. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They all of a sudden were like, we're naked. We're less than. We're not enough. And so they had to cover themselves up. They had to get creative with fig leaves and cover themselves up. And then God shows up and they hide. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? So God shows up for their afternoon walk. Every day in the cool of the day, God would show up and they would walk. They would enjoy God as he enjoyed them. But now that they were judging themselves, that they had shame in their life, they think of themselves as defective, so they need to hide. And they think of God as scary, so they need to hide. And God says, where are you? Where are you? And, uh, and God says, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you're not okay as you are? Who told you that you're not sufficient, that you need to do, that you need to be, that you need to strive? Who lied to you so that now your life is about, you know, performance reviews and achievement standards and comparison and judgment and feeling less than? Who lied to you and introduced shame into your life? Brene Brown, this, uh, this, this, this teacher, this lecturer, this writer, she says this about shame, because I, I, I think that we don't think deeply enough about shame. We don't think enough about how it shows up in our life. We don't think about the pain that it causes. And uh, Brene Brown says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Believing that we're flawed, believing that we're broken, believing that we're less than. And so therefore, we are not worthy. We are not worthy of love and belonging. And this story in Genesis chapter 3 is so profound because it's not only Adam and Eve's story. It's Alexander Hamilton's story. And it's our story, right? Satan is the accuser. He lies. We believe his lies. And then what ends up happening is that our life becomes about trying to measure up. Our life, we become aware that we're naked. We become ashamed. Shame comes into our life. We get creative with fig leaves to try to cover it up. We try to hide. We try to overcompensate. And this is a really painful way to live because we were not created to live this way. We were created to get all of our value, all of our worth from God. That, that we are made in God's image. You are made in the image of God. You are loved by God. You are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. That is what's supposed to give you value. Not anything that you do. Not how you measure up next to other people. And so, and so we live with the sense of comparison. We live with these achievement standards. We live with these performance reviews. We live with pain. Now, I have this picture here of, of a newborn with his parents. Or with, uh, and, I, and I think that a newborn with new parents is the purest relationship that there is in this world, right? Because, because when, when newborns, you know, they, they're just experiencing the love of their parents, they don't have to do anything, especially when it's that first child, right? It's like the love is absolutely unconditional. 
The love is, it is, it is not earned, it is just given. Value is not earned, it's just given. Because this little baby who can't really do anything, I mean, babies can't really do a lot. They can poop, they can sleep, they can cry, that's about it. But that doesn't change the incredible love that the baby's parents have, have for it. Right? Because, because that baby comes, it was, came out of, out of their union of love. And so the value is a given. The value is a given and this baby doesn't have to do anything to earn it. And that's how it's supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to live our life. And we yearn for that, for that total acceptance, that total freedom. And the sad thing is, though, is that this cute little baby is born into a world that's filled with shame and runs on performance reviews and achievement standards and comparisons and judgments. And it's just a matter of time until that takes hold of this little baby. And this baby, like, here's the message. You've got to measure up. You've got to do more. Your value is going to be tied to your performance. And then the pain of shame is going to come into this little baby's life, just like it's come into all of our lives, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so with all that, when I watch Hamilton, I see this incredibly gifted man whose life was tormented, whose life was cut short, his life was filled with pain because he never dealt with the shame in his life. And so after, after the Revolutionary War, Hamilton was a war hero. He was, you know, just huge in, in the Revolutionary War, uh, the Battle of Yorktown and in other, other battles. He went back to New York and he was a lawyer and, uh, and he, he was incredibly driven. And so there's a song, there's a, there's a number in, in Hamilton that I think really captures everything here that I'm talking about. It's called Nonstop. And it just shows how Hamilton was so driven in his life trying to prove something to himself and something to all those around him as shame was pushing him and shame was driving him. So let's, let's check this out. This is nonstop. After the war, I went back to New York. After the war, I went back to New York. I finished up my studies and I practiced law. I practiced law, burr work next door. Even though we started at the very same time, Alexander Hamilton began to climb. How to account for his rise to the top? Man, the man is nonstop. Gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with me. Are you aware that we're making history? This is the first murder trial of our brand new nation, the Liberty Mahanda Liberation. Tend to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt with my assistant counsel. Co-counsel Hamilton, sit down. A client let me reach his innocent. Call your first witness. That was all you had to say. Okay, one more thing. Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Assume that attitude, baby. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Keep on fighting in the meantime. I am sailing off to London. I am accompanied by someone who always pays. I have found a wealthy husband who will keep me in comfort for all my days. He is not a lot of fun, but there's no one who can match you for turn of phrase. My Alexander, Angelica. don't forget to rise. Look at where you are. Look at where you started. The fact that you're alive is a
Alexander joins forces with James Madison and John Jay to write a series of essays defending the new United States Constitution entitled The Federalist Papers. The plan was to write a total of 25 essays, the work divided evenly among the three men. In the end, they wrote 85 essays in the span of six months. John Jay got sick after writing five. James Madison wrote 29. Hamilton wrote the other 51. How do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Running out of time. Running out of time. I'm doing the best I can to get the people that I need. I'm asking you to be my right hand. Man, I know it's a lot to treasury ask to leave behind the world. You Sir, know. Sir, do you want me to run the treasury or state department? Treasury. <laughs> Let's go. Alexander. I have to leave. Alexander. Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. They are asking me to leave. Look around, isn't this enough? He will never be sad. He will never be satisfied. So I think, you know, this, this really was something that, you know, historians see as a theme that was all throughout Hamilton's life, and Chernow certainly writes about it, Miranda focuses in on it, that, that he had to be the smartest in the room, you know, and Aaron Burr says, it's going to be your doom, why do you write like you're running out of time? Why do you have to prove yourself? Why are you so driven by shame? Why are none of your accomplishments enough? And so let me ask you a question, because again, I think this is, it's so important for us to get some revelation, to get some perspective, to get some awareness. So who told you that you were naked? Right? Remember when God shows up for Adam and Eve and he said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that, you know, however that manifested, that your nose was too big or your ear stuck out too much or your hair was too curly or your hair wasn't curly enough or that, you know, you weren't smart enough or you weren't pretty enough or you weren't athletic enough? When did you begin to believe? Because, you know, we've all eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we've all dealt with shame. When did you first begin to believe that if people really saw you, if they saw the real you, that they would reject you. And so your life has been about trying to figure out how to use fig leaves and how to, how to cover yourself up and how to hide and how to compensate. Who told you that you didn't, that you didn't measure up? Who told you that, uh, you know, that with comparisons that you were on the wrong side, that you weren't as whatever as your brother or you're not as pretty as your sister or you don't measure up in this way or that way? Who told you that God is fed up with you? 
Who told you that God isn't for you and that you need to hide from Him because He's angry with you and He's, he's not for you? Because what happens is we get frozen. What happens is we experience shame. And we, those moments, when we, especially like when we first begin to realize we're getting the message that we're not enough, we experience shame and we get frozen. We get stuck in those moments. And those moments, it, it, they show up in our life. Unless we let God heal us, they show up in our life. So the 11-year-old girl who's made fun of because she's a little bit chubby, she ends up developing an eating, an, an eating disorder when she's an adult. Or you have the 17-year-old who gets the message from his father and from his coaches and from his peers that though your value is tied to how you perform on the football field or your value is tied to the grades that you bring home and the college that you get into. And, and then what ends up happening, you fast forward, you get stuck there, you get frozen. And so, and so now, you know what? You've got a, you're a workaholic and you've got a failed marriage under your belt and you've got the beginning of an ulcer because you got frozen with that. Where has shame showed up in your life? Shame, to, to quote Brene Brown again, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And so shame in Hamilton's life, not only did it drive him and make him a workaholic, it devastated him personally. And so what ends up happening is that his family, his wife and his kids, and they all go upstate to the Schuyler home, which is in Saratoga Springs, New York. And, and Hamilton doesn't go with them for the summer. He stays in New York because he's a workaholic. He's got to work. And, uh, and there's a woman named Mariah Reynolds, and he ends up having an affair with Mariah Reynolds. Might have been like set up by her husband, might have been like a long con. Uh, so he ends up, you know, he's, he's extorted and, he, and he's blackmailed. But then it kind of comes out. And so what he does to keep it from coming, it just responds in such a shame-based way that he responds. He writes something called the Reynolds pamphlet, which is just so like over the top. It's a hundred pages where he details, you know, great detail about this affair and everything that happened and where they had the affair and, you know, all, the, all these facts that were unnecessary, devastated his wife, embarrassed his children, cost him, he probably would have ended up being president one day. Now he wasn't going to be president. But the most destructive way that shame manifested in his life was when it came to duels. Now, it's hard for us to get our head around duels because it's such a, you know, thing from a bygone era. They were called affairs of honor. And so Hamilton was involved in seven affairs of honor as, as the, the, the chief, you know, one involved. He, he basically was involved seven times where either he challenged someone to a duel or someone challenged him to a duel. That doesn't mean that he dueled seven times because it would usually get resolved like the duel was the final step in that, in that affair of honor. Uh, so seven times he was, the, he was the, the primary participant in a duel. Three times he was like the number two or he was kind of the witness. And, uh, and, and his 19-year-old son, Philip, who was, you know, a gifted kid and the apple of his eye, he got into it with this guy named George Eaker. And Eaker had insulted Alexander Hamilton. And so, so Philip stood up for his father. And you see how shame just kind of gets passed down. And so ends up, you know, Eaker and Hamilton, Philip Hamilton, they, they challenge one another to a duel. And so Philip goes to his father and he says, what, what should I do, Dad? Now, what any sane father would say who wasn't driven by shame, would say, you don't have to do this. 
Don't risk your life. You're only 19 years old. You've got your whole life ahead of you. That's not what Alexander Hamilton told him. Alexander said, okay, well, you know what? This is about your honor, and this is about the family honor, so you got to show up, but, but you don't want to kill George, so what you want to do is throw away your shot. You want to shoot up in the air, and that way you'll preserve your honor, and everything will be good. And Alexander actually gave him his guns. He said, here you go, son. Here are my guns. Go have a duel. I mean, who does that? You know, what kind of insanity is that? But that is something that came from his shame. And so what ends up happening is that Eker shoots Philip, and, and Philip is mortally wounded. And so, so this led to a really dark period for Hamilton, where he blamed himself, I think rightly so, for the death of his son. He's still estranged from his wife, Eliza, because of the, because of the Mariah Reynolds affair and the Reynolds pamphlet, and now she blames him for the death of Philip. And so so he was a broken man. And that's what will happen. Shame will drive you and shame will leave you broken. And, uh, and Ron Chernow in his biography says this about Hamilton during this season. Hamilton was an altered man after Philip died. He even looked different. The ebullient wit had fled and the eyes were fixed downward in a melancholy gaze. Some new impenetrable darkness had engulfed his mind. And so he was no longer living nonstop. And there's the distance now between him and Eliza for so many reasons. They move uptown. They move to Harlem, which was kind of funny. It was kind of like moving to the country back then. Uh, but I think that what happened during this period of time is that Hamilton came to the end of himself. He stopped trying so hard to prove his worth to everyone around him. And I believe that he reconnected to the faith of his youth. And, and Eliza, who was a very strong Christian, was an incredible Christian woman, uh, their, their mutual faith enabled them to, to, for, to uh, enabled her to forgive him and for them to move forward. And he was, he was a changed man after this, after this period. So let me show you the next clip here. It's a little bit about the conversation with Philip and Alexander, and then it's a number called It's Quiet Uptown. So let's check this out. About you. I doubt you would have let it slide and I was not about to slow down. I came to ask you for advice. This is my very first duel. They don't exactly cover this subject in boarding school. Did your friends attempt to negotiate a peace? He refused to apologize. We had to let the peace talk cease. Where is this happening? Across the river in Jersey. Everything, Everything is legal in New Jersey. Jersey. All right. So this is what you're gonna do. Stand there like a man until Eker is in front of you. When the time comes, fire your weapon in the air. This will put an end to the whole affair. What if he decides to shoot, then I'm a goner. No, you'll follow suit if he's truly a man of honor. To take someone's life, that is something you can't shake. Fill up your mother can't take another heartbreak. Father, promise me. You don't want this young man's blood on your conscience. Okay, I promise. Come back home when you're done. Take my guns. Be smart. Make me proud, son. Money. Thank you. 
Gott. Oh I love that, that line or that, that line that's sung, you know, forgiveness, the unimaginable, you know, can you imagine? Because I think it, it captures 
the grace, the return to faith that, that was going on in Hamilton's life during this time. As I said before, faith played a huge role in the, in the Hamilton story. doesn't really get talked about that much in this, in this play, in this musical, but, but it really was an important part of his, of his life. And, and, and during this dark period, he reconnected with the faith of his youth. He was described as, as being devout, and, and people said he became very religious, and his, everything changed in his life at this period. And, and so you probably know how things ended for Alexander Hamilton. His foil all throughout his life was Aaron Burr. And Burr was dealing with his own shame because he always felt like he never measured up to Hamilton. And then in 1800, Aaron Burr ran for the presidency against Thomas Jefferson, and it was a tie. And uh, what really tipped the scales was Hamilton endorsed Jefferson, who was like his enemy for, you know, politically was his enemy for his whole life, but he didn't want to see Burr become president. And so, so uh, Aaron Burr becomes Thomas Jefferson's vice president, which is really weird. The way it would work back then is if you lost the presidency, you became the vice president of the person that you lost to. And, uh, but Jefferson didn't like him and was going to replace him. So Aaron Burr decided he was going to run for governor of New York while he was still the vice president. And, uh, and so Hamilton got involved in that, didn't run against Burr, but said things that, that Burr believed kept him from becoming governor. And so he blamed Hamilton for all of his failures and everything that happened. And so he challenged him to a duel. And Alexander Hamilton accepted this duel. And so they dueled in Weehawken on July 11th in 1804. And by all accounts, Hamilton did what he told his son Philip to do. He, he threw away a shot. He shot towards the sky, but Burr shot and mortally wounded Hamilton. And Hamilton was brought back to New York City. And, and what I love about the Chernow biography is so moving. It's captured what happened in the day or two while, while Alexander Hamilton was languishing, uh, while he was dying. Because as soon as he was brought to the house, his main priority was that he wanted to make sure that he was right with God. He wanted to take communion. And so they reached out to the rector of Trinity Church, the Reverend Benjamin Moore. And so he came, but he said, I'm not going to give you communion because you were shot in a duel and I don't want to do anything that's going to like look like I'm, I'm okay with dueling. So he didn't give him communion, but, but Hamilton desperately wanted communion. So they got another minister, Presbyterian John Mason. And so Mason came, wanted to give him communion, was trying to comfort him, but they had a rule that you couldn't give communion if you weren't in the church and there's no way they could get Hamilton in the church. And so Hamilton said to Mason, he said, I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. And Mason felt bad about not being able to give him communion. He grabbed his hand and he said that Christ's blood would wash away his sins. And Hamilton responded and said, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so eventually uh, the first minister, Reverend Moore, came back and, and gave um, gave communion, and that comforted Hamilton and everyone else. But before he went to face Burr, he wrote Eliza a letter, should he not survive the duel. And I, I think, you know, why would he go ahead and duel again, even after God had come back into his life? I think the, the hooks of shame were really deep, and it, and it, and it pushed him to do this, this one last thing. But he wrote to Eliza, he said, you know, basically, should I not come back the consolations of religion, my beloved, can alone support you, and these you have a right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. 
Now, Eliza, she was an incredible woman. She was an incredibly strong Christian. She lived to the age of 97. Uh, she was an abolitionist. She, she worked so hard to make sure that Hamilton wasn't forgotten, that Hamilton, his story was retold, his accomplishments were, uh, were given the credit that they deserved. Uh, but she founded uh, the Orphan Asylum Society of New York City, the OAS, uh, and, uh, and she remained the director of that orphanage until she stepped down at the age of 92. And that orphanage is still in existence today is the Graham Wyndham. And what's kind of cool is when Hamilton was so popular, they were able to raise a lot of money for this orphanage that Eliza Hamilton had founded that's still in existence. And so the last clip that I want to show us is the final number from the show. It's who lives and dies, who tells your story. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known. I was young and dreamed of glory You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story President Jefferson I'll give him this His financial system is a work of genius I couldn't undo it if I tried And I tried Who lives, who dies, who tells your story President Madison He took our country from bankruptcy to prosperity I hate to admit it but he doesn't get enough credit for all the credit that he gave us. Every other founding father's story gets told. Every other founding father gets to grow old. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? Who tells your story?
So that, that gasp at the end, um, you know, there was questions about, about what was she responding to, and, and uh, um, uh, the actress Philippa Sue said that every time it was a little bit different. Sometimes, you know, maybe it was like seeing God or seeing Hamilton or, or you know, seeing that now the audience, the theater is filled with people and, and uh, she gets the chance to tell his story. But see, this question, right, who, who tells your story? I think it really gets down to the heart of, of what I, I think God wants us to hear about, about shame. Because how we answer that question has everything to do with whether or not we're going to get free of shame. Because think about Hamilton. I mean, think about everything that he accomplished. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Shame continued to dog him. Shame continued to chase him. Even though we accomplished everything that he accomplished, you are not going to be able to outrun your shame. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you accomplish, it's not going to be enough. You're still going to have that feeling of shame dogging you. The only way that we can get free is if we don't worry about who's going to tell our story. Who, what, what are people going to think of us? And, and how are we going to be judged? And, and how, are, you know, how are people interacting with us? Rather than saying we're going to worry about who tells our story, we're going to make our lives about telling his story. We want our story to be swallowed up in his story. That's the way that we get set free from shame. We talk all the time here about center your, your life on Jesus. That is not just so you can go to heaven when you die. Yes, you will go to heaven when you die. But if you center your life on Jesus, if you make Jesus the center of your life, if you don't worry about who's going to tell your story, but you make sure that your life is all about your story being swallowed up in his story and being part of his story, then you're going to be free from shame. You're going to experience what Paul experienced in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, if you could have the eyes of your heart opened up to see that your worth is settled. Your worth is settled because you're made in the image of God. You are loved by God. God's thoughts towards you outnumber the sands of the seashore, and they are all loving thoughts. And Jesus Christ shed his blood for you. That's how valuable you are. Once that becomes real to you, you will be able to say, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You will be free. And you will be able to accomplish. And you'll come into all the purposes that God has for you. But you will do it because you know that you know that you know that you're loved. You'll do it because that's settled. Because that's established. You're not trying to earn love. You're not trying to prove yourself. It makes all the difference. And the more we can live in his story, the more we can have that be the center of our life, then what Jesus promises can be true for our life. That out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water, rivers of living water that are not tainted by shame. And so everything that we do, we do for his glory. We do because he loves us. We do because he's for us. We do because our value is settled. Our value is given and we don't have to strive and we no longer have to be bound up and, and experience the pain that comes from shame. Jesus Christ wants us all to be free.
He wants us to be free from shame. And so we center our life on him and we say, God, my life is going to be about your story. I want my life to be caught up in your story, who you are. And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would set us free. God, that wherever it is that we're frozen, God, wherever we're stuck, the things that have happened to us that have just been playing out in our life, the shame that we've been experiencing, the pain that it's caused us, that it's caused those around us. Lord, we pray that you would set us free. God, that you would set us free from shame. And Lord, I pray that right now, God, that you would give all of us just that, that revelation that can only come through your Holy Spirit, that our value is settled, that we don't have to do, that we can just be, and Lord, you promise, you say that whom the Son has set free is really free. And so God, I just pray in Jesus' name that we would be a people who are free. And so God, I just pray that wherever the enemy's lying, the lies of shame, the lies that say you're not enough, the lies that say you have to do more, those lies of comparison, those lies of performance standards and, and, uh, and, and achievement and comparison and judgment. God, I pray that you would set us free so that we can just enjoy you while you enjoy us, God. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going we're gonna to close now with uh, an opportunity for you to get some prayer. We have people from the prayer team who would love to pray for you. If, if there's anything going on in your life where you want some prayer, just keep your masks on and we'll stay six feet apart, but they would love to pray for you. And especially if you know, like when we were talking about where shame has kind of shown up in your life and the, the pain that it's caused, there's something really powerful. If you will kind of share that with somebody and invite someone to pray with you about that, you might find that you can experience a real powerful level of freedom. All right, God bless you guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming, and uh, we'll see you next week.